0: Welcome to Wine, Women, and Writing. This is your host, Pamela Fagan Hutchins, and you have stumbled across the show where I talk with other writers about their stories with complex, authentic female characters at their cores, and if we're lucky, the real-life issues that have helped translate them into great reads or other super secret stories behind the stories. And we do it with some humor, the occasional dive into profanity, oversharing, irreverence, and uh, whatever gets us through the day. So, I write these um, mysteries. They are USA Today bestsellers and Silver Falchion best mystery winners. So, it wouldn't hurt my feeling if you checked my books out as well. And if you get to my website, PamelaFaganHutchins.com, you'll find a, a, a little uh, clicker for my podcast which is what we're doing right now. And in this uh, particular link, you'll find another link, a special link that lets you subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered automatically to your own device. So check that out for sure. But even better than all that about me is what I have in store for you today, which is pure, delicious, dark, and lovely uh, upcoming release, Faith Like Me, with author Barbara Borland. Welcome, Barbara. Hi, Pam. Thanks so much for having me. You are very welcome. Um, I am really excited to have you on the show. You've got only, I think, a week until the release of Fake Like Me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's next Tuesday. The birth of the book, baby. <laughs> has it been a busy time? Yeah, it has. Um, there's,
1: you know, it's it's such a strange time because there, there's nothing really other than talking about the book obviously there's nothing more that I can actually do to the text and so it's kind of a jittery limbo time but I you know it'll be over soon enough (laughs) (laughs) I'm going on tour which I think will be really fun it's you know it's um all of my publisher does all of the kind of big sales stuff and
0: and my job is really just to connect with readers so I'm I'm looking forward to that. That will be fun. Is this your first full-scale book tour, or did you do one to support your first release as well?
1: It is, yeah. It's my first big trip around the country. Um, For my first book, I did a couple of events and um, have continued to do readings and talks since it came out. But, um, you know, I think it's harder with a debut novel. I mean, nobody, it's your first book, nobody knows who you are. So you can try to throw yourself in front of people and they're just like, okay, well, congrats.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I definitely feel you on that. And book tours are so much fun. Where all your, where all, I'm not speaking very well yet this morning. I think I better slug my coffee. Where all will you be going to? um,
1: I'm, I'm starting here in Baltimore. I have two events here next week. The first is at the Ivy and the second is at Greedy Reads. After that, I'll be going to the Twin Cities. I'll be at Next Chapter Booksellers in St. Paul, uh, which used to be Common Good Books, but was recently sold and had a name change. And then I'll be going to San Francisco to Booksmith. Uh, I'll be in Los Angeles at Book Soup. After that, I'm going to uh, RJ Julia in Connecticut, in Madison, Connecticut. And I will also be at the uh, Fest- the Wasaic Summer Festival in Wasaic, New York. And then after that, I will be in Providence, Rhode Island for an event at Askew
0: with Reading with Robin. It sounds like you've really got the country covered there. You are going to yeah racking up the privilege. All I'm missing problems. is, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be really, it'll be fun. Now, the Wasaic Project was also instrumental in um, uh, support with Fake Like Me, if I remember reading my press kit correctly, and I'm not familiar. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: So the Wasaic Project is a fine arts residency in upstate New York, and it's a little bit ad hoc. um, Two women who are my age started it 10 years ago. Um, they just started buying up a kind of abandoned 19th century industrial town and converting the spaces very slowly into, into workable studio space for artists. And I was in my edits already on this book. And I realized that I, you know, there's something I, I, I did. A, uh, this book is set in the world of fine art. I did a great deal of research for it. Um, and when I got to the to the edits, there were just I needed something more. And so I sent them the first two chapters. Um, Fake Like Me is about a painter who goes to stay at the private retreat of a group of artists that she's long admired in upstate New York. And that retreat is called Pine City in the book. And it is also a little bit ad hoc. It's, uh, it's private. It's a group of friends who buy, buy an abandoned motel and turn it into kind of their own big studio slash playground and so I had heard about the Wisaic Project through the arts college where my husband used to teach, uh, which is called MICA, the Maryland Institute College of Art. It is the oldest art school in the country. And so I sent in the first two chapters and, and said, you know, I'm writing about something that's really similar to what you are. Would you be willing to host me? They don't host a lot of writers. Um, they mostly host fine artists, but I wanted to be around fine artists. And so they offered me a residency and I was there for two months, and I think it was so helpful just to, you know, I had a studio just like everybody else had a studio, although mine had a little table in it and a whole lot of cans of Lacroix, <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, yeah, just hearing you know artists grind so hard, they spend so much time in the studio. They're they get in at seven in the morning and they can stay until midnight and. Maybe just nap in there and then get up three hours later and keep working. And so it was really um, being being in the physical presence of everyone's movements really helped me ultimately with the pacing of the
0: novel. So you feel uh, and like and being able to. It, you feel Go like the, the story really changed over the course of your residency, or or the or the uh, tone and, and uh, setting, or um, the impact. Neither the yeah n- no, uh,
1: it, the story. Um, I think the story got deeper, um, and the tone is the same, and the setting is the same. But the really the the sense of time in the novel was all the better for me having. Been isolated in this place, and for me to be kind of experiencing what the narrator was experiencing as I was as I was finishing up the book.
0: It sounds super intense, and, and, and in effect the novel yeah. is super intense. Um, so, with respect to your time there, did you find yourself also working in other mediums, or were you sticking with your book? Um, are you an artist yourself? I'm a very bad artist. I am absolutely an artist.
1: Uh, I make work that is definitively non-commercial, is how I put it, because no one will ever buy it, which is fine by me. Um, I I make. I have had a long time ceramics practice. So I give away a lot of pottery. If you would like a lumpy mug? Let me know. And um, I draw, um, but I draw really banal things. Um, I really like to draw buildings (laughs) and uh and I'm a horrible painter um and while I was at Wasaic I made no fine art whatsoever the people around me were so talented and I um just didn't I just didn't need to have that um moment of comparison I didn't need to lose any more (laughs) self-esteem so yeah but I do make work at home but that is you know that's that's for me. It's a it's a hobby like anyone has a hobby.
0: Was it your um I'm gonna use your words? Was it the fact that you are an enthusiastic and yet um non commercial <laughs> artist <laughs> that led you to be inspired towards the story and towards this this slice of life, the these artists and these residencies? Um or or, or what led you to it? Oh my gosh, so many things. I um Oh, sorry,
1: I should ha- I really should have an answer for that. Ready, ready to go. <laughs> I am married. <laughs> uh, yeah, I am married to an art historian who also uh, writes for arts magazines. And so he goes on studio visits a lot, and I tag along a lot, because artist studios are these incredibly special places. Um, on the one hand, they're all the same. It's just, you know, it's a room with kind of primer white walls, flop sink. Uh, hopefully level floor, but the way that people kind of store process and alter their materials is so different. And when you walk into an artist studio, I mean, there, I have seen the most extraordinary things in people's studios. I have seen a warehouse that had a a row down the middle of drafting tables that were back to back. So it was like a spine of drafting tables. So the artist could work on both sides with like a 50 foot length of paper. Oh my gosh. I have seen, I, yeah, it was amazing. I have seen uh, marble stacked to the ceiling. Um, I've been, I was standing in a warehouse in South Africa, watching a guy named Zimbota, who is an amazing artist, um, run a current through a, through a wire, just, just that literally taking an electrical current, running it through a wire and then using that to cut styrofoam. Um, it is, it just, I, I've had so many experiences of watching how other people work and, and, you know, I want you want to write about it, and I have so many ideas about artworks that if I had the talent, boy, would I love to create them. Um, and and so much of contemporary art is so beautiful, and so much of it is also so bad. And <laughs> so it really, um, yeah. I think I started writing this book. I made there's been a huge movement of artists, you know, up towards up the Hudson Valley. Um, up through Duchess and Ulster and into Columbia counties. And I made some crack on the stairs to my husband about, um, I, it was like some dumb joke about artists killing each other. And my husband kind of looked at me and then I sort of looked back at him and I said, oh, I have to excuse me. <laughs> and I just went upstairs <laughs> and um, and wrote something down. And then that eventually turned into this book.
0: Well, I thought um, you captured the some of the. I'm going to use the word wacky. Some of the wackiness, um, quirkiness is a better is a better word. Um, wild creativity is an, an even better way to describe it. And the broad spectrum of what people are creating and the 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 authenticity and the, and the backdrop it gave to the story, the depth was really for me as a non artist cool. But as as a writer. Um, and I don't live in Houston anymore, but for a while as a writer, I spent some of my writing time in a warehouse that was an artist's warehouse. And we just had this Houston, um, this Houston writers um, space that was one of the studios and you could go in, and it was you know a, a non-profit, so you could go and you could be there, but just to walk the halls and to peek in the rooms, meet some of the artists, see what they're doing, was a tremendous stimulus to writing creativity. So I do want to say that you have created those works in your head. You just did them on the page. You gave them to your narrator, and you gave them to Carrie, and to some of the other characters. And it was very real for me as a reader, and something I could really relate to because of my experience having, having you know, spent that time writing. In, um, in what was an artist studio that did have a level floor. <laughs> <laughs> but had those plain white walls, you know, so it's not to mess yeah. with the creativity in our heads. And anyway, so for me, it was super cool. I found it to be really, um, uh, something I could visualize and thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, and in fact, that's why you're on the show. We, when, you know, the, I was pitched to put you on the show and took a look at the book. It was like, oh yeah, <laughs> I love this. And I love twisted female character stories which besides being a story about the art world to me fake like me really was in fact how would you classify the book I mean there is there is someone who is dead so to an extent it's a mystery but to me it was more of a twisty thriller how do you or do you classify what you've done here well
1: uh I you know it's sort of all of it's satire there's a mystery there's um it has the tempo of a thriller towards the end. But that's not, I I don't know, a modern gothic horror is maybe even another thing that you could call it. It is is a very light remake of Rebecca. Um, So Rebecca is a gothic horror novel by Daphne du Maurier that uh, was written in, uh, excuse me, published in 1940. Um, Daphne du Maurier, it became a Hitchcock movie. She also wrote several other books and short stories that became Hitchcock movies, including the short story that became The Birds. And uh, Rebecca focuses on a young woman who is, um, she's a companion to an older woman in Monte Carlo. And she meets a mysterious, wealthy older man who represents all of the class privilege that the, uh, the woman that she works for um, values, so highly values. And he asks her to marry him and she ascends and she goes to live with him in his very large home in the countryside in, in rural England called Manderley. And, Everywhere she turns, there is a ghost of his dead first wife, Rebecca. And this, you know, she's so she's trapped in this environment, thinking about this woman who has come before her. And it is it is so of its time, um, by which, you know, the narrator is uh, does not have a skill set aside from being able to get married. Um, she's incredibly naive. She doesn't have a lot of self confidence, uh, but it is such a there's something about that. that I hate the ending of that book. Let me just say that. I absolutely (laughs) hate the ending beyond everything that I've, anything that I've ever read. But I think that there's, there's something about sort of what it means to be at best with people who came before you um, that I think is really meaningful. And in Fake Like Me, the narrator is very, very focused on an artist who has, has died before she sort of arrived at this place, Pine City, uh, because she it, it's, not, it's not necessarily a romantic jealousy. There is romantic jealousy in the book and sexual jealousy, but it, it really a, it's really a professional question of how, how did you make your life and how am I supposed to make my life? Because a creative life doesn't have the same kind of rules and hierarchies that most professional careers do.
0: Right, and you know, one thing I came away from reading this um, book, kind of thinking about the feelings that I was left with, and the pondering that I did was really around class, gender, art, ambition, obsession, desire—not desire, desire, like sexual desire, like you said—that was there. That was that stepping into the shoes of someone that came before you, but that wasn't at the heart of it. It was, it was just this. Very, very dark, circular feeling of how far would you go for what it is your heart wants most and and how does that define you you know um yeah and and and, and how does where you came from fit into that? so those were the feelings that this left me with. so if that's what you were going for, you got it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good, yeah, I you know creative industries are incredibly elitist.
0: Uh-huh. writing
1: is incredibly elitist. Art is incredibly elitist, and everything you know, class reproduces itself, uh, and everything is a secret code. It's very hard to figure out how to how to build a life um, when you are working entirely on your own. And right. you know, the reason that I love I love to do what I do. I love to, I love the doing the work. I like writing. You know, it really it makes me incredibly happy to sit down and do the work, and to go through the process, and to work on the edits, and to take something that is just a joke in a stairwell and turn it into something that becomes a much deeper object. And the reason that I want to be successful at it is not because I want to be on Good Morning America. It's just because I want to pay my mortgage. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the the reasons that it's not work, not all creative workers are of like showy narcissist you know what i mean it's not um it the the things that we're the amount of time we're willing to spend on our work and the things that we're willing to do are are really at the end of the day to satisfy
0: some pretty basic needs right and i'm going to echo that because I, i I'm at a place where I'm sure you know what I mean. Oh God, <laughs> oh man, this is this. You're hitting it. This this incredible nerve for for I think that the the bulk of creative artists. There are some that are out there that are for the Good Morning America slot, like you say, or that want some people want to wanna be famous and it's, good on I mean, them. Listen, yeah. not do it. Get it. But I just want, I want to be able to write without it causing me to have to sell off everything I own and me, the live and sackcloth, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it would be great if I could pay the mortgage. It won't stop me from writing because there is some inherent satisfaction Um, Whether it's the scratching of an obsessive bitch, or whether it's this, the characters are talking to me and I can't stop them or just the joy of it that I can't help from doing it. But at some level, yes, you want to pay the mortgage and, and yet those that have the ability to pay the mortgage, if you will, um, and then have the ability to indulge a desire to write, to create, there's a feeling of sometimes of jealousy of, and and there's that class thing to a certain extent, you know, I'm a poor starving artist, you're maybe a wonderful artist, but you're not poor and you're not starving. And that rub between, I want to get there where it's easier Versus the suffering artist, where it's hard. You know, I think we a lot of us can really relate to um, some dark-hearted feelings. (laughs) You know, yeah.
1: I mean, of course. Yeah, it's really uh, it's it's not it's so much the issue of who has what resources to get ahead is such a complex question. And we, you know, we live, we live in the United States where everyone for a long time has loved to pretend that everything is equal, but we know we live in, an un- incredibly unequal society.
0: Exactly. And,
1: um, you know, it's not, it's really hard to change it. And in writing, I think, you know, it, it's sort of, I don't know. I, the, there's, authors that I see who get crazy amounts of support because those authors are a brand, Mm -hmm. you know, someone, someone who has a TV show or who has um, like a hugely successful podcast or whatever, the book itself is an extension of the brand. It's not um, their whole life. (laughs) Um, And that becomes, I think a power dynamic of sort of a, there's writers versus celebrities in the same publishing house. And that's really a strange circumstance. But, um, you know, it, I, I I don't know how we're supposed to kind of reconcile, like know, knowing all of these things. How do you sort of go through your life every day, um, feeling however you're going to feel about the world around you, about, you know, the world is not equal. Some people have power, some people don't. So how do what? you kind of wake up the next day and
0: say, you know what, I'm just going to get back to my work? And that's a lot of what was going on in Fake Like Me. It's a lot of what's going on in the real world. My husband, who is a He's a chemical engineer by day, but for most of his life, he was also a bassist. And he talks about all these. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, he's pretty cool. And a surfer. I mean, my husband rocks, but um, the, um, you know, the idea that incredible talent doesn't necessarily get you there. You know, some of the best. Yeah, guitarists. music is so hard. Music yeah. is, music seems much harder to <laughs> me, frankly. <laughs> well, because, you know, y- you get people that are incredibly talented. He says some of the best guitar players he ever knows, for instance, are still playing bars, you know, when they're. Of course, yeah. Into their dotage. And and the ones that do make it, why do they? Uh, you know, it's it's a hard Well, thing. and then they're stuck with each other forever. You know,
1: ZZ Top is still playing with their original lineup. And if they didn't, they'd become unknown because their name is <laughs> totally, <ZZ Top. laughs> totally. Totally. They made it big as ZZ Top, and now they're just trapped in the prism of being ZZ
0: Top forever. You, you can barely even get a divorce. It's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With a right, Yeah, and I think. You write alone. Uh, well, I was gonna,
1: yeah, I'm alone, which is, you know, it has its, uh, uh, its upsides and its downsides for sure. It is equally good as it is bad. But for artists, like musicians, the the golden handcuffs are pretty clear. If you really make it, it means that people buy your work and they put it in a warehouse because it's an investment and nobody right. looks at it again until after you're
0: dead. <laughs> right. I was thinking and, was in the paradigm of Art being free. I'm using big quote marks around my head and we go to museums and we look at the art of people that were dead and it was purchased once upon a time, but we see it as free. And then you translate that into music and books and things that are also art and an expectation sometimes by people that artists will languish for the free benefit of the society. And then it becomes hard to pay your mortgage. <laughs> so it's Yeah, I it's, mean art art is definitely not
1: free. You know, museums not. receive huge tax benefits. Owners of artworks who show their work in museums or donate their work to museums receive huge tax benefits for doing so. You can actually if you have if you have the if you have the will, you can make your own private museum. There are over 266 of them in the world. Many, many, many collectors have private museums, so they are entitled to the same tax protections as, say, the Met or the Guggenheim. People invest in art because it's an investment, right. um, specifically because it's a luxury good and it's not classed as an asset. So it's not it's subject to the same regulations as any other kind of financial asset. It's, a, it's a, the easiest way in the world to wander money. <laughs> <We have a laughs> so, which I just, I just wrote about if, uh, for something that's going up next week oh cool um yeah yeah anyway
0: well and so. It, and so then where does where does uh a book uh where does you know an album things like that, where do they fit in it's all such a cool and interesting thing to talk about and we're almost out of time I to so make a stop <laughs> oh all right <laughs> <laughs> we're not done yet but there's a few other things i wanted to ask you about and i could talk about that all day um you have something on your website that cracked me up. And in a way it's related to some of what we're talking about. You talked about being clean for seven years from Facebook. And um, oh, yeah. that cracked me up. Did you have a problem before? Was there was there a moment where you had to say, 12 steps, Barbara, come on, Babs, out of Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I do have terrible ADD and it is incredibly
1: distracting for me to be on Facebook. I think, when was, it was probably... Right around the time I got married and I was, you know, really building this new life with my husband, but then like looking at my phone at someone's cousin's nieces, you know, <laughs> wedding photos or whatever, you know, you're just like, what am I doing? How, why am I doing this? Be in the uh, now. So, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know, Instagram is of course super distracting in its own way. And obviously it's owned by the same company, but it uh, uh somehow it's a little more limited, I think.
0: It it has. I think it's because it's harder to repost stuff. Yeah, yeah. I find that I can pull myself away from Instagram, um, but yeah. Facebook is hard, and and the Facebook I find myself constantly wasting my time on things that are of less interest me to me. The the, the least oh, yeah. interest. So it's really tough, yeah. and um, and it makes
1: me bored. It makes
0: me really bored and annoyed, and and yet
1: it is this massive waste of time.
0: Yeah. So I, that did, that did make me laugh. And, and, you know, there's some to me comparison towards getting away, going to a residency completely breaking free of stuff that breaking free from Facebook that you did. So, you know, it's like, it's, it's a recovery process. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and so your writing practice day by day must be quite different from being at, for instance, Wausauk. Um, Do you find yourself to be immersive like that though? Do you go all in? I do. I did. I've
1: been uh, writing novels full time for the past four years. Um, and which was fine until I got a second dog. And now, <laughs> now it's like we had a baby. Uh, we have two mast Italian mastiffs, Um, and the older one is fine. She chills. Her bladder is bigger than mine. She loves to sleep. She's a very, a very sweet dog. Um, and then we got this puppy in November and it is crazy. It is so much work. Um, I can't believe it. And so I feel like it's been years since I had a totally uninterrupted um, set of hours to just write. But I, yeah, I do work every day. I just sort of, at this point, I'm now taking multiple dog-related breaks.
0: <laughs> I have a Boston Terrier that will come and just sit in front of me and stare at me, and you know, and false <laughs> alarm most of the time. But it's a miracle he hasn't been in here barking at you while you're on, you know, on the podcast with me because he's very offended. If I sit in the chair, it's the end of fun. I'm full time too, but it, it's the animals. They kill me. They kill me. In fact, my Belgian Malinois just walked in. Hello, Georgia. Hello, sweetie. Um, So with, um, I'm going to briefly mention, like I said, we're running low on time, but I want to briefly mention your first book. Um, And your first book, what had, to me, the title was absolutely fantastic. Tell us just a tiny bit about your first book, um, because I want people to be able to run the table with you. These two books, and then move on to whatever secret project you have going on right now that I'm sort of gonna <laughs> talk about, but tell us a little bit about your first book.
1: Sure. I'll eat when I'm dead is mm-hmm. a, is my first novel. It is, uh, that phrase is a real thing that a very rich woman said in the New Yorker in 2011, Daphne Guinness, who is the heiress to the Guinness beer billion. <laughs> she is, uh, super stylish. She has Tons of you know she has billions of pounds. She has lots of power, and she was doing this interview with Rebecca Mead for the New Yorker while she was doing a photo shoot for German Vogue, and um, she was you know she she has this kind of white bouffant, and she's a bit older than I am, and she's someone who I always had thought you must have all the confidence in the whole wide world, and uh, she's being interviewed for the New Yorker, and while she's being interviewed, she's leaning against this wall, and her assistant keeps trying to get her to. And uh, I, I believe it's consume either an insure or a Red Bull or both. And she's waving it away saying, I can't eat. I'll eat when I'm dead. <laughs> and I thought that was so incredibly sad that someone who had billions of pounds uh, and is is like, she's got to be in her 50s, you know, like, why, how can you still wake up every day believing that if you were just thin enough, that your life would be better? I thought that was the saddest thing I'd ever in my entire life, and so, um, yeah, I'll eat when I'm Dead came out of that. It is a murder mystery set at a fashion magazine, and uh, it has a sad ending, <laughs> I think um, yeah, that is a super wild ride of a book. I had a book, um and it came out of every conversation I'd ever had in my life about what I was supposed to think about my body.
0: And you know, I'm 52 and I went walking with a friend yesterday and this literally was a topic of conversation was when are we going to start hating on, stop hating on ourselves for our body? And it's that same feeling of what are we trained to think is, is how we're supposed to look and when do, when the hell do we get over it? <laughs> it's really difficult. I mean, it, I don't know that it is actually possible for anyone to do like the idea that
1: we have, we are personally responsible the way that we feel about our appearance I think is maybe it is maybe not accurate because mm-hmm. we are being convinced in every which way by every person that we encounter that our appearance is important this is what people believe about women is that the way that we look matters absolutely and it is reinforced constantly in every single interaction and I don't know I've just gotten more slovenly <laughs> I'm, I'm barreling into trying not to care I don't know if that is working or I think it's, I'm certainly spending far less time on my appearance. I, I don't know if I have changed my mind, but I've changed my behavior. If that makes sense.
0: I think that that's exactly where I am. And that, and, and it's a, it's a 22 because I have changed my behavior. I'm a happier person. And yet there are moments of absolute stark, terror and self-hatred where I have a, have totally. a, a, a regression. If only I was beautiful. Oh, I yeah. wish I was more beautiful. You just wish it. You just oh. wish it, wish it, wish it. Yeah. It's like, um, I'm going to go out and be seen by humans. So all of this yeah. happiness I'm feeling is false because I need to hate myself and get, get skeletal suddenly because someone might see totally. me. Do you still live in Texas, by the way? Um, half- you, live, you don't live in, Half the year in Texas and half the year in Wyoming. And I'm tell you, the closer I get to Dallas, the more I feel this.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I was in Houston several years ago, right around Christmas. And I was there visiting a friend who was a publicist. And we went to, this is literally like a sad Christmas story. We went to three Christmas parties. um, And I think all of them had, this must have been in like Southern Living or something. But at every party... The, uh, the caterers and the help hired for the evening took our handbags took the women's handbags and put them in a, like a guest bedroom
0: huh.
1: and um, I was the only woman wearing pants at all three of these parties but anyway the thing about them taking our handbags meant this is 2017 2016 maybe that meant that every man at the party had a phone and none of the women had phones so the men were taking calls. And texting and looking at stuff on the internet and we were just standing there getting more and more drunk <laughs> <Just so laughs> missing lines. it was and none of the women around me seemed to think this was weird every Friday I kept being like they took our phones away and it, these women were just like oh honey don't worry about it and I was like what do you mean What it, what is gonna happen to us it feels a little captive ah oh, yeah that's... absolutely absolutely but you know it was really uh that was wild. I, I've never been to three parties in a row where I was the only woman wearing pants. I <laughs> I was yeah. shocked. I really was. I can't, I can't imagine what it would be like to grow up in that environment.
0: It's important to be pretty. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. It's important to look. Yeah. Exactly. And it's even worse. Okay. I'm going to say it. And in Houston versus Dallas, it's a huge thing. I lived in Houston for 10 years. I lived in Dallas for five. And now my husband and I have a a third home in Dallas—it's absolutely killing me. By the way, don't ever have three homes. It's bullshit. It is not cool. Not—it's not. I not It's don't not. Worry, I won't. It's anyway, so every time I go into Dallas, I feel like I need plastic surgery. Oh my god. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I, I love Wyoming. I love. I love. Wyoming. Yeah. Right now, my hair hasn't been brushed in three days, and it's like this complete luxurious retreat for me. And the luxury is. That I'm easier on myself. So no, no, yeah. no, um, uh, no, I can eat when I'm alive, <laughs> basically. Right. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. I wish I could talk to you all day. This has been so much fun. So if you ever, thank come you so much for having me Wyoming, or if you ever come to Dallas or um, Houston again, you've got to look me up or one of a million writers conferences. Let's get together and do this again in person.
1: That'd be great. Thank you
0: so much for having me, Pamela. You're very welcome. And I hope that the release next week is a huge success. Count me as a fan. I really enjoyed Fake Like Me. And for my readers and listeners that know that sometimes that um, that I, I have people on the show with books where when you email me and you say, should I really read it? I say, uh-uh, you should read this one. It's really original <laughs> um, and it's uh, complex and wonderful and, and rich and dark and deep. And while you're at it, you should be reading splash of vanilla, which is for the next show. Um, I believe we may have a surprise guest next week. Um, So watch my website for that. And, um, you know, it's not going to hurt my feelings if you pick up my new release that's uh, on pre order right now as well. Buckle Bunny. So you guys do that. And Barbara, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for writing wonderful books. And thank you everybody out there for spending your time with us. And until next time, here's to real women those that write them good wine and really great books.